Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPM podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I'm talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today, it's my great pleasure to talk with Nicole Elko and Julie Kinzelman, authors of Human and Ecological Health of the Coastal System. But before we talk with them, let's take a word for our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So today we're talking with Nicole Elko and Julie Kinzelman, and I would like them to both introduce themselves since they've got so many amazing things they've done, I can't possibly cover them all. But Julie, since you're new to ASBPA and Sure words. Could you introduce yourself first? Thank you. Um, like I said, my name is Julie Kinzelman. I'm an associate lecturer at University of Wisconsin Parkside in the Center for Environmental Studies and Masters in Sustainable Management, where I teach water resource management. This has followed a, a 30 plus year career as a laboratory director for the City of Racine Public Health Department, where I worked uh, cooperatively with parks and the stormwater utility to identify sources of repairing and coastal pollution and develop and implement restoration measures. I'm Nicole Elko, the science director for the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. I also serve as one of three co-executive directors for the U.S. Coastal Research Program. And I am based just outside of Charleston in Folly Beach, South Carolina. Thank you. And how can we find the paper that you're going to be talking about? It is on the U.S. Coastal Research website at uscoastalresearch.org and also on the asbpa.org website under publications. So, Julie, thank you so much for being part of this paper and part of the podcast I'm delighted that you're one of the 21 authors on human and ecosystem health in the coastal systems. What an amazing paper. And I'm so delighted to meet you as a, for me, a new person to the ASBPA world, and also to provide a voice from the Great Lakes, which is often overlooked, but still one of the most important parts of the American shoreline area. And so um, what was the impetus for you to join this paper and make your great contributions to the discussions on science that's in the paper? I was, thank you for inviting me. Um, I was invited onto the paper um, as a result of my being one of the speakers at the conference. And some of the conference organizers were individuals that I had worked with before. So although I'm located in the Great Lakes and have done most of my research in the Great Lakes, I've also worked nationally with people on on the coasts 
and in the Gulf of Mexico. And so I was familiar with some some of the other individuals. It's always it's always great to uh, be able to work together cohesively with like-minded people working to enhance coastal resilience and protection of public health and ecosystem stability. Great. So what conference is this you're talking about? We had, um, as it says in the beginning of the paper, that it originated from from a conference that was held virtually, of course, like all conferences due to to COVID from um, Nicole, since she helped, helped to organize the conference so that she would be able to better speak to the, the reasons why it was held and who was invited. Sure, Nicole, what, what's up with this conference you're talking about or Julie's talking about? The U.S. Coastal Research Program hosted a um, virtual workshop on the topic of human and ecosystem health in coastal systems in early January 2021. And Julie was one of the speakers in the coastal pollutions topic area. And as she mentioned, um, due to some collaborations with EPA and other um, coastal scientists and practitioners in this world that touches what ASBPA does on a typical basis. Um, but, you know, we're not really immersed in some of the pollutant conversations. This was a way to sort of engage and, you know, work across disciplines on some topics that are impacting coastal resilience. I was delighted to see this was a Shore and Beach article that you wanted to develop. But as you say, it's it's a little bit outside the the normal bandwidth for the Shore and Beach articles. Want to go into some of the details on it since it's it's only just now out and many people will not have read it. This is an opportunity for them to get a, a little get their toes wet in the paper and want to read the whole thing. Absolutely. We um, so we talked about two large or, or big picture topic areas: coastal pollutants and then resilient ecosystems. And the resilient ecosystems is an area where uh, we are, we the ASBPA and Shore and Beach readership are pretty comfortable. That's it's in our wheel, wheelhouse, if you will. But some of the topics related to coastal pollutants are, as I mentioned, just a bit outside. So we started thinking about things like. That, that we that we do understand well, like um, wave transformation across the shelf, nearshore circulation, and then how does that relate to coastal pollutants, right? What is the fate and transport of pollutants once they enter the coastal system? So, you know, identifying and mitigating coastal pollutants, including fecal pollution, nutrients, harmful algal blooms, and microplastics all came under this umbrella of coastal pollutants, um, and they're discussed in the light of how our knowledge of of coastal processes, physical coastal processes, can sort of help a better gain a better the you know the, the greater community gain a better understanding on on how to manage coastal pollutants. And and it seems like to me the coastal pollutant discussion was filled with all these wonderful acronyms of FIBS and HABS and SAV and OA and of course MP, but um, the alphabet soup of things that are now the soup in our ocean to some regard in some regards. So Julie, I see you are the the lead author for the fib portion of this, which um, talks about in one part CPR tests, which I think we are all now unfortunately quite familiar with, but I didn't realize, I guess if I thought about it more, I'd realize they would be part of looking for fecal 
indicators. But talk about what you um, you think is the sort of cutting edge of where we're going to be going with fibs and explain to the folks listening what a fib is, please, because we know them one way, but not the way you're talking about them. Right. So fib is in the context of fecal pollution is fecal indicator bacteria. So for like almost a century now, people have been assessing recreational waters, looking for levels of indicator bacteria. So not, not a pathogen, not the bacteria that makes you sick, but bacteria that's found as normal intestinal flora bacteria uh, in humans and animals. And um, that has its, its basis in epidemiological studies that have been conducted by the US EPA. So an association between levels of this bacteria and incidence of waterborne illness. And so we become really good in, in the public health realm to look for levels of E. coli in freshwater or endococci, most commonly in, in marine waters, although they can be interchangeable, um, to say whether or not there is a credible human health risk associated with swimming. But while it's good at doing that in, 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 um, in some regards, it, it's not good at telling you what the source of the pollution is. So I can we can post a beach over and over and saying, well, the water quality is poor. This is, you know, it would be best if you didn't swim here, but it doesn't get at the root cause of why is there unacceptable levels of enterococci or E. coli in the water. And so that's where some of the, the newer MST, so another acronym, microbial source tracking, um, gets into play. So it's being a detective, you know, can you trace back um, either visually or through laboratory analysis, what the source of that pollution is, because the true measure of public health protection is the removal of the source of the pollution, you know, versus the um, preventing the exposure. So both important, but I mean, you can prevent exposure, but then that has economic and societal ramifications. If people live in the coast, they have some sort of expectation that they'll be able to to fully utilize that resource. And so some of the newer techniques now are that have been uh, fine-tuned are looking at can we assign that E. coli or the enterococci, whatever fecal indicator bacteria are using, back to the source. So is it coming from sewage? Is it coming from seagulls? Is it coming from agriculture? And in what contributions and when, you know, are we most likely to have that influx of those types of bacteria? So that is in a larger term microbial or fecal source tracking. And then qPCR, quantitative polymerase chain reaction, is a laboratory method that can be used to um, facilitate the identification of the organisms. And it can even be used to get a more rapid test for the fecal indicator bacteria, a result. So traditionally, the fecal indicator bacteria were measured using uh, culture. So you got water, you filtered it, and then you waited for the bacteria to grow. Um, which used to take days. Now, uh, with more traditional culture-based methods, it can take 18 to 24 hours. So basically, we're telling you, well, the water was bad yesterday, so we're going to ask you not to swim today just in case it's still bad, but the likelihood from uh, is that it could have changed. Um, so this qPCR can give us a result in a few hours so that it's more relevant to public health, saying we took a water sample this morning, and the bacteria levels are high. So we're posting it today, not retrospectively, based on something that happened the day before. And with that posting, can you determine whether 
it, it is from seagulls, as you say, agricultural runoff or human effluent. So there's a fecal indicator bacteria assessment, which can either be done with a culture, which takes time to grow and gives you a retrospective result. It could be done with qPCR uh, more frequently. Um, there's been a lot of effort in the Great Lakes to use that method. Um, and actually, uh, the city of Racine, Wisconsin, where I work, has been using it since 2012. So we can tell people whether or not it's safe to swim based on fecal indicator bacteria in near real time. There's also models that you can use to estimate based on environmental conditions. So that is something different than microbial source tracking. So microbial source tracking will then get at where, where is that E. coli from? Um, and it can use other markers like bacteroid, human-specific bacteroides. So another gut organism um, that's been found to be prevalent, for example, in sewage. And so you can look at E. coli fluctuations in conjunction with um, some of these other organisms or um, environmental conditions to try to pinpoint when and where the E. coli is coming from, you know, because the E. coli, because it's in your intestines, it would cohabitate with things like bacteroides, another enteric organism. So they're different things. So people that are monitoring for recreational water quality may or may not be also doing microbial source tracking. And of course, it would depend if there's a problem. If your water quality is, is generally good based on the fecal indicator bacteria assessment, you may not need to go to the effort and expense of doing the microbial source tracking. But if you have variable water quality or poor water quality, then that would be the next logical step is to determine what the source is. Another interesting thing that came up, Leslie, during those conversations was the, um, uh, Julie mentioned the m notification of sort of, you know, the old way of testing. It took so long for the results to come back that we were notifying um, communities and then they were notifying beachgoers sometimes a day or two after the, the water was contaminated. And, and by that time it might've cleaned up. We had a, a great story from the city of Myrtle Beach here in South Carolina where they have been working with the Department of Health here to entirely change the way that notifications go out to the public because the Tourism Council was getting phone calls from people in Ohio canceling their vacations three months out when they heard something on social media, right, that the beaches of South Carolina were contaminated and, and, and closed. So there's a huge public information messaging element here that, that was uh, really interesting to hear how some of the different communities are addressing it. And I know in California, the, the routine used to be whenever it rains, many of the urban streams would be at the beaches would be posted just as a precautionary measure because there's the expectation that whatever is going to be flushing out of that coastal watershed will be um, have a high enough fecal indicator bacteria to potentially cause human health, and you'd rather be on the uh, precautionary side of all this. And yet, there's that flip side, as you mentioned, Nicole, of of tourists. Uh, canceling an otherwise wonderful opportunity to go to the beach for fear from a posting from three months earlier. And what is the, the, the length of duration, I guess, of these bacteria that could be harmful? How long do they stay in the water? I mean, the, depending on environmental conditions, they can change within, you know, minutes to hours. I could, you know, there'll be variability if I stood 
you know, in a static place and, and kept scooping bags of water, there might be some amount of variability just within that, you know, those short time frame. Um, we can see water quality change within a matter of hours, for example, in the Great Lakes, we were talking about stormwater discharge. So if we had a rain event and we had stormwater discharging into the nearshore waters, and if the wind changes, you know, if you have an onshore wind, then that would tend to hold that stormwater closer to the shore. If you have an offshore wind and depending on the currents and the waves, it might dissipate and dilute within a matter of hours. So it's it's it really requires a, uh, an appreciation for coastal dynamics. You know, that's where sometimes you can use mod the modeling comes into play because you can then take that information and it can give you an extra piece of evidence on whether or not we think water quality, you know, will have improved or, you know, or worsened perhaps. And then because you, if you have the capability to do real-time testing with qPCR, you can go back and get another sample, for example. And you might not have to have beaches closed for days or even a whole day. You might be able to to reopen that that beach to full body contact. Understood. That's great. So one of the things I noticed in the discussion on pollutants is they tended to go almost in a historically um, contextual basis where they they're the things that became of concern over time. And so um, bacteria were kind of the, the concern for many, many, many years. Um, then you go into har harmful algal blooms, which have been of a more recent recognition and concern of where those are, um, into microplastics, and then finally into ocean acidification, which or maybe I have those reversed. But it, it seems like there is this progression of both awareness of what we are doing in the oceans and in, in the Great Lakes, and also awareness of the impacts of those things, but additionally, an, aware, a, a, an increase in what we as humans are introducing into our coastal waters. And so do you want to talk about any of those other pollutants before we get into your recommendations for, you know, sort of a broad scale monitoring, testing, and recognition of these? But are any of those other types of pollutants things you, you want to discuss at all? I mean, all of those things. So people are able, of course, as laboratory uh, methodology evolves to test for things that they couldn't test for before. So not you know mentioned in this necessarily, but things like um, personal care products and pharmaceuticals. And so those have always been discharged, you know, but now there's technology able to, to test for them. And I think the harmful algal blooms, I mean, cyanobacteria or something that, that was naturally occurring, um, but perhaps more so we haven't touched, you know, impacts perhaps of a changing, changing weather patterns and climate in addition to the anthropogenic effects. So harmful algal blooms can be exacerbated by nutrient pollution, phosphorus and nitrogen, um, stagnant waters, uh, warm temperatures. So that's something, of course, that, that other pe people might have heard in relation to Lake Erie and drinking water. Uh, microplastics, you know, and other things that, that people are finding, you know, as we delve deeper and have the ability to look at in, human impacts on coastal ecosystems, you know, we're looking beyond just, I said, fecal indicator bacteria and swim, yes or no, you know, the kind of binary decision into all the other things 
that that make up you know a healthy healthy shoreline and i think just in the in the report as a whole one of the most revealing components were that there are these cross cutting issues which create opportunities for multidisciplinary research to address all the critical drivers of environmental degradation whether that is fecal indicator bacteria levels or nutrients that are precipitating harmful algal blooms or microplastics in you know the the ways that people uh, use reuse and dispose of uh, products yeah and i would add that you know we really identified that the needs to address you know the societally relevant elements of of all of these different coastal pollutant challenges are similar, like Julie mentioned, you know, we need to better understand the point sources, where it's coming from, then we need um, our, to improve on our observations, not only just in the water, but maybe in the biota. Um, we need to standardize how, we, how we're measuring them and how we're communicating it, um, you know, and it, 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 the cross-cutting needs for the pollutants categories were pretty revealing and interesting. For example, if you're going to transition sort of into the coastal, the resilient coastal ecosystems and the fisheries, you know, the nutrient pollution that can result in a harmful algal blooms, the nutrients can also impact, for example, dissolved oxygen in, in concentrations in water. So that impacts the biota, the fisheries, the macro invertebrates, uh, same thing with the microplastics, certainly having them there has impacts on coastal fisheries and other other components of the ecosystem and um, mechanisms of transport for fecal indicator bacteria. Um, they can be attached to particles. So coastal erosion and particle turbidity and things like that also then impacts coastal fisheries. So there's direct linkages, even though it seems like people, um, these cross-cutting issues, you don't necessarily always bring together these diverse researchers, agencies, and stakeholders to look more comprehensively at coastal resilience through that lens. So I think that was something that this paper tried to do is to, if someone reads through, not just, you know, uh, kind of impacts for their area of expertise, but reads it through, hopefully we're able to weave through this comprehensive approach that all these things are interconnected. And and Julie, along those regards, are, are you, there are recommendations both for monitoring and also for, for some efforts at information and policy and are are you seeing anyone making recommendations to kind of eliminate the individual examination of different issue areas and be more holistic in addressing pollutants as a whole? Or do you even think that would be a worthwhile effort to undertake? Well, I mean, it depends, I think, on the situation. So um, I worked for over 30 years for a local public health department, kind of doing, but um, maybe non-traditional when you think of public health in uh, working at coastal resources, although many public health agencies are the ones responsible for the routine monitoring, but I worked cooperatively with the stormwater utility in our parks department, and we looked at things like implementing nature-based solutions. So we started out with the fecal indicator bacteria assessments, and we knew that we had issues with recreational water quality, but then going through the source tracking process, um, we had opportunities to integrate nature-based solutions like coastal wetlands and um, 
bioswales and dune and swale systems and improve hydrodynamics and things that are then also beneficial to to other components of the system you know so that work being able to work do research and then implement at the local level i think we were able to get a, a holistic view and work across um, different departments so i think and i think that happens elsewhere it depends on the situation so i think that we need people to focus on on some of the individual things in their areas of expertise because i'm certainly not an expert in all of these different things and i gain knowledge from studies that other people have done that are site specific organism specific method specific but then i can try to synthesize those things together and build the puzzle from all the existent puzzle pieces and that helps to to be a better detective and a better change agent right so Nicole, I see you know sort of this paper having a bookend of one of our more classic traditional water quality concerns, and then going to one of the more innovative and/or classic opportunities for shoreline protection and and addressing many of the pollutants and concerns we have. That being the the natural nature based features that are uh, such a hot topic today and, and deservedly so. And I'm glad that you are also part of this conversation for many reasons, but that's that's your your main um, specialty and interest. So what what did you learn anything new as you were putting this paper together talking about the natural and nature-based features? Absolutely. the The need today to gain a, a more well-rounded, you know interdisciplinary understanding of, things that we had, we coastal physical scientists have been doing for decades now is, was really illuminated to me during the, um, you know, working with these 21 other co-authors. So for example, we've been nourishing beaches for a hundred years now, and it is um, not often that you think about all three elements of um, the things that we've discussed here, right? You're sure you're building your your beach and dune system for whatever reason the community wants it, but that is a natural nature-based feature, right? That's a living shoreline. That's a type of infrastructure. So it ties over to that end of the paper. And then as you mentioned, Leslie, you know, we also now today need to think about, well, how is the stormwater runoff affecting this beach? What where what does the water quality look like? Are there microplastics coming to this system? So these elements are, are are really at the forefront of coastal management today, I think more so than ever. And there are, there's plenty here, although this paper is highly technical. And as you said, there's an alphabet soup of acronyms and um, other technical elements. There's also a great message for coastal managers here to um, apply that lesson. You know, maybe they're doing a, an estuarine living shoreline. Maybe they're installing an oyster reef to um, reduce wave energy. Well, all of those water quality impacts are, are very relevant, as well as that sort of infrastructure element of um, building resilience. And it seems like there's there's been a, um, a generalization of the science for natural nature-based features into ecology. And yet, as the paper points out, there's so much in the design that's going to be important that we need to pay more attention to. Hydrodynamics of different features, how that will affect roughness, what that's going to do, what it will do with retention times and different different topics. And I think this 
Um, the other thing this paper does so nicely is it brings together scientific disciplines that have been a little bit, um, I do this area. Oh, I don't deal with hard science, building gray infrastructure. I'm, I'm doing you know, water quality testing, but they all do come together. And I think that's an important element of this paper, something that you did well. So Nicole, I think since you're one of the instigators of all this, did did you see that having people work together on this paper brought a greater recognition of kind of the fields outside their, their comfort zone and people were uh, um, recognizing that, that cross-cutting benefit of, of knowledge and sharing of information? We did, especially in um, developing the recommendations for the paper. You know, in the beginning, there was a pretty strong sense that these needed to be two separate workshops, two separate papers. They were not related. <laughs> and, and by the end, we put out this two-page summary of recommendations where many of the recommendation bullet points touch all six of those topic areas. You know, they touch natural nature-based features, they touch fisheries or shell fisheries, and they touch water quality or coastal pollutants. So um, we, the, the, the researchers, the stakeholders, and the federal agency folks involved, you know, the co-authors represented all those affiliations. They really did come together and realize um, how much overlap there is between their disciplines. And, and especially for the, the natural nature-based features, it seems like a lot of stakeholders along the coast are grappling now with how to best facilitate their introductions or reintroductions into coastal areas in a um, positive and regulatorily, regulatorily responsible way. So, Nicole, did you, did you feel like I felt like a lot of your recommendations were geared toward part of that aspect of the natural and nature-based features. And is that a universal consideration or is that just um, maybe based on my geography of finding that to be a concern right now? I think we would have even included more policy and regulatory recommendations. Or, I mean, well, let me put it this way. We could easily write a separate paper on that topic, Leslie, because there was so much conversation around that. You know, we really tried to focus this paper more on the technical elements, um, allowing the science to be presented so it could then be applied. So the element of translating this science, this foundational knowledge that is summarized in this paper is is ripe for the picking. We're really um, excited about some of the opportunities that this paper is introducing for engaging stakeholders and translating this information into use. So like currently I'm at, at the University of Wisconsin Parkside and so I have colleagues that are I'm working closely with on integrating nature-based coastal habitat and engineering solutions, um, in the, which includes fisheries. So I think that it's, there's, there is a recognition that it, that it all goes together. And, um, at least here we're, you know, we're trying to bring together project teams that can help inform local decision-making based on, on sort of the trade-offs, you know, do you put in uh, shore protective features like breakwaters or revetments, and if you do, what does that do for water quality? Um, what is there? Are there benefits to fisheries? You know, how does all those pieces 
fit together. And of course, that all has to be in context to some sort of regulatory or permitting framework. So how do we get all those moving parts together to help people make the the best decision possible? Like, you know, the gray infrastructure, the new, the new recognition of the importance of green infrastructure in these nature-based solutions, which are basically putting back some of the uh, natural nature's buffering systems that existed prior to significant urbanization. So what's that niche? You know, how does that fit all fit together? Exactly. And I, I think I've, I've often heard the term teal to be that intermediate between all green and all gray, but it's great that we're working toward that. And the the more we can try to quantify and learn from those projects that have been introduced, I think we're going to see just better and better treatment of our coast as a resilient feature. So I'm, I'm pleased with the work all 21 of you are doing and that you had such a great conversation. I want to go back, though, for one thing, Nicole, in your discussion on natural and nature-based features, because there's something in here in your policy that I don't really, I'm not sure I understand it fully, and it's something I want to be clear about. You talk about dynamic coastal setbacks is something you would use that would contribute to coastal risk. I mean, they would be part of the degradation of that system. And so the setback would change with the degradation of the feature itself. Right. So some coastal communities are looking at um, different setbacks, even within um, one community or municipality or neighborhood based on not only the physical ecosystem, right? If it's a beach or an estuarine system, but on how how fast we might expect that system to be compromised. Um, so we're really trying to understand things like, um, you know, marsh health is a great example here in the Southeast so that we can prioritize where um, these natural and nature-based systems might be most effective and then also prioritize the kind of upland land management, you know, um, quote behind those systems. Communities have a real opportunity to um, make changes within their jurisdiction that can greatly improve resilience, right? And that is sort of um, upland of, of any jurisdictional line. So they can do things with zoning, with um, their own building codes, right? With setbacks. So maybe they need to increase a setback line that's only five or 10 feet from a critical edge. Maybe they need to increase that by 10 or more feet in areas that are uh, high risk. And then you would have checks on that. You would be going in and doing monitoring to make sure that degradation wasn't happening faster or, or ideally it would be happening slower than anticipated. But You'd be using that as a as a, a rolling setback basis. Exactly. Okay. Based on monitoring, yes. Great. So for both of you, um, Julie, first, have has um, out of this paper, have you started new projects or collaborations with any of the authors, or brought other people into this? What What are you doing next? That's a follow up to this paper. Like I said, I meant that I've been working with um, UW, University of Wisconsin, Madison Engineering, 
in University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences. And, and then, you know, through my, my position at UW Parkside, and we're looking to, to kind of bring together these sorts of, of uh, concepts that are, are in this paper to be able to provide uh, guidance and information to coastal communities in Southeast Wisconsin. So we're working, you know, and I think um, as we were, you know, working on this paper, we were also working as a group um, in this paper is a reflection of the fact that, that we're recognizing that all of these, all of these things need to be co-considered in order to, to um, most effectively address ecosystem health and environmental degradation. And um, I think that we're also um, looking at that there is a lack of consistent and comprehensive sort of pairing between natural and social science assessment frameworks. So I think in natural sciences and in engineering and that we don't we don't always talk about ecosystem services. You know, so how how do we look at the framework of an ecosystem services within the context of proposing recommendations for site mitigation or future monitoring and assessment programs? How do we take in that into account? Great. So bringing it not not necessarily locally, but but back to to the Great Lakes region in particular, and trying to do some collaborations from this. That's great. Yeah, well, we're working within with this project's working within the state of Wisconsin, and particularly more southeast Wisconsin on the western shore of Lake Michigan. But but I think you know as we're work, as working on this paper, we're working um, other projects, and that became something that was apparent in this paper as well as in our projects. You know, the concept of eco system services and and the need to consider not just uh, coastal dynamics, you know, and physical types of things or microbial types of things, but how people use the space, um, what sort of value is placed on it, you know, from all those different aspects. I think that's something hopefully that that will come out of the paper is that, you know, you need to and we know with all this, you know, engineers and, and natural scientists that we need to get that component, the economic component, the social component. Is that you know, cities are cities are comprised of the people that live there. And so how how do we best serve their needs while serving the needs of the environment? Nicole, or what are your next focuses? We at the Coastal Research Program um, funded about $4 million of academic research that came out of the workshop in 2021. So um, those research projects span the topic areas that you hear about in this paper, including um, you know, the, the pollutant topics of fecal pollution, microplastics, um, harmful algal blooms, as well as some of the resilient ecosystems topics like fisheries, shell fisheries, and natural and nature-based features. So um, that research is underway. We're, we're thrilled to have engaged um, many graduate students, which is one of the missions of the program is to train the next generation of coastal scientists and engineers and sort of expose them, you know, as you mentioned, Leslie, in the beginning, bring them out of that silo of whatever physical coastal processes they've been studying and introduce some of these other interdisciplinary elements. And then in the... Uh, Throughout the rest of 2022, we're looking forward to another call for proposals, 
that the U.S. Coastal Research Program will be involved in collaborating with the National Sea Grant Program, actually, to really get at that element of translating the science. How do we now take this, engage the stakeholders that need the information, and uh, make this something useful and applicable to increase coastal resilience nationwide? Good luck. When are, when are the first round of papers going to be available, do you think? The, most of the projects are three-year research efforts, so it'll be a little while, but we will keep um, our blog and our newsletter up to date on our website at uscoastalresearch.org, so we hope everyone um, stays tuned in. Perfect. I'm impatient, but I guess I can wait another year, two years, but that's great. So taking us a little bit away from the paper, but still regarding beaches and what you know about beaches and water quality and the natural features that are available there. What what are your favorite beaches to go visit? So Nicole, what's your favorite beach or beaches other than Folly Beach? <laughs> well, that's my favorite beach. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I love, um, well, I love U.S. beaches and uh, I'm actually heading to Galveston this week for the Coastal Engineering Research Board meeting. So um, it's always fun to, to get down to Texas. I was thrilled to have an opportunity recently to also visit some, some beaches on our Great Lakes. Um, and I grew up going to, um, to Presque Isle. So I've, I've had a great experience with, with beaches all around our country, as well as you Leslie, in California, we're looking forward to coming out to Long Beach later this year for our annual meeting. Wonderful, because California does have some nice beaches. For sure. And Julie, how about you? What are your favorite beaches? I don't know that I have a favorite beach. I think my favorite beaches are, are all the ones where where people have uh, you know, taken the time to make improvements. So I, like, I love it when I, I see beaches that that there were there were problems and they've you know people have taken um, some sort of steps to mitigate pollution and they've gone from someplace that was that was not well used not highly visited and now it's thriving and it's impacting uh, local communities in a positive way so there's beaches in Door County which is a tourist area of Wisconsin for example where you know the site the site was not used a lot and they've made changes and now people flock there and it's such a big benefit to local economies. Um, so I guess I'm like really busy. I don't have, I don't really go, have, go recreationally to visit the beaches. Those are the beaches I visit. I do it professionally and they, they all are all great. I love, I love the water. I've always grown up close to water. So, you know, I don't think there's, there's not a bad beach or a beach that lacks potential. <laughs> great. And I think as, as coastal professionals, we could take any visit to the beach as somewhat of a job, but a wonderful opportunity on that job as well to be there. And if you don't know about it, American Shore Beach Preservation Association has best restored beaches, which is a lot of what you're talking about of, of places that have been um, improved over time. So maybe you should be thinking about recommending some of the beaches in Door County or other places for, for best restored beach opportunity. Well, there you go. There's something to, to put a plug in. So one of the beaches that I worked on when I worked for the city of Racine was Samuel Myers Park, which was one of the 2021 best restored shores. It always holds a special place in my heart because I've spent many years working on it. And then the final question is books. Getting back to literature, since it says shore words, do you have a favorite book or, 
couple of books that you read over the years that really influenced and, and motivated your your chosen profession, what you're doing now. Julie, is there something that you read that made you say, I want to deal with coastal water? Or Nicole, then, I want to deal with coastal beaches. But Julie first. Um, I don't think really. There wasn't really a... Um particular book that said made me like go down this path I've always liked being in nature like I said I've always grown up in a coastal community and had that connection to nature so I think it was more the fact that there were issues with in you know and wanting to problem solve and then you know that guiding me to to different either publications or as I'm sitting here reading now I have a handbook of coastal in ocean engineering. So the fact that my PhD is in microbiology, but that that's only one part of the puzzle I need to assemble. So now I'm, I'm reading these um, two volume set of coastal and ocean engineering. Excellent. Great bedtime reading, by the way, I'm sure. <laughs> How about you, Nicole? Well, I must admit, uh, A Salty Piece of Land by Jimmy Buffett was one that influenced me early on, as well as all of his music. I, I'll tell you a secret I don't tell many people, and that is I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So um, I was very inspired to get to the beach and get to the coast to start doing the work that I have been doing for the last few decades. We're, we're so glad you left. I'm sure Pittsburgh misses you. And the millions of Shorewards viewers will now know your secret as well. Are there other things you want to add before we, we before we end this conversation? Definitely. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the paper and and I think the important the importance of, of kind of getting out of your silo, you know, whatever it is, whether it's for shore and beach preservation or if it's in some other other um, profession that that everybody has something to offer and you never know what you might learn from those conversations and interactions. You sound like my friend Orville Magoon who for years knew that everyone he met was just a potential genius waiting for them to give him his secrets. That's a great closing and to everyone who is listening to this podcast today, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed talking with Nicole Alco and Julie Kinselman. And till next time, enjoy the coast and your views from the shore and read great coastal literature. Goodbye. Goodbye.